Our scripture reading today will be taken from Romans 15. If you'd open your Bibles there, please, to Romans 15. We'll be continuing on in our journey through Romans. We're going to be looking today at verses 7 to 13 of the 15th chapter. This is in the context of not judging each other in gray areas and not focusing on ourselves. And I made mention of the fact last week that a person who's focused on themselves will be the most miserable person of all if they even move to Timbuktu. And then I said, I didn't even know if there's a place called Timbuktu. Fortunately, people in our church and people watching live stream know there is a place called Timbuktu. <laughs> and we're happy you let me know that. It's in Mali in West Africa. So we appreciate your astuteness in this. Follow along in verse 7 as I read, Therefore, Accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the scriptures and the exposition to follow. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, what a powerful, glorious God you truly are. The heavens display the glory of thyself. The earth displays it. The trees, the leaves display the glory of your majesty. The animals display your glory. The problems with people, people like us. And there are times, quite honestly, when we don't display your glory. And we need you to use your power to enable us to grasp your precious word that you've given us so that we will reach a level that truly does display the glory of God. We need you to use your power to enable us as a church to grasp and implement your words so that we display thy glory as a church. We want to thank you for the privilege we have of living here in the United States of America. We thank you for the freedoms we enjoy here, the sacrifices that many have made for the freedoms that we enjoy. We want to pray for our leaders in this country, that they would honor you and protect those freedoms. We pray that you would turn their minds to salvation, turn their minds to truth. We pray that our leaders would make decisions that are not emotional, they're not political, they're not prejudicial, but they would make decisions that are biblical. We pray you turn their minds to make decisions that please you so that you can bless us and permit us to live in peace and dignity. Lord, we want to especially today pray for the grieving families in Maine, who've lost loved ones by a satanic coward and killer who shoots down innocent unarmed people in a bowling alley. We pray that you would use your amazing grace to draw those families to thyself, give them thy comfort and strength, help them in this time, heal them, heal their broken hearts. We certainly want to pray for Israel, Lord. This passage right here prompts us to do that. We pray that you would protect the Jewish people. We pray that our leaders would stand with her, help her, Help us to realize that you bless those who bless her, you curse those who curse her. And Lord, this world is dark and depraved, and help us to 
be lights as individuals and as a church. And we pray you come get us soon, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. One of the real problems that Christians have is the problem of getting along with each other. We can frankly be very irritating people. As believers, we can be a pain in someone else's neck. And yet here we are, a group of people, all different backgrounds, from all walks of life, and we gather together at church, and we are supposed to develop in such a way that we reflect the glory of God as a family of God. So I want to kind of begin this by giving you a series of multiple choice quizzes that we'll call Give Glory to God. I'll present the situation. You just in your own mind tell us, or tell yourself, what you would do. Don't tell us. Probably this would be counterproductive if you do that. Situation number one, a person from church that you don't like is in the grocery store. You've seen them, they haven't seen you. What do you do? A, pretend you didn't see them, get out of there to another aisle as fast as you can. B, let them see you and look at them, but don't say a word to them. C, let them see you, tell them you hope the cans on the top shelf fall on their head. (laughs) D, go up to them and kindly say hello. Which do you think would give glory to God? Situation number two, a person at church has really insulted you to the point that you're frustrated and hurt. The person happens to sit in the same row you're in on Sunday and looks at you and smiles. What do you do? A, pretend to bow your head in silent prayer so they don't know you saw them. B, pick up your things, move to a different row. C, lean over and tell them they really need to listen to the message they're about to hear. Or D, tell them you're glad to see them, you're glad they're there. What brings glory to God? Situation number three, a person at church is a brand new expensive car. You see it as you get out of your old clunker. What do you do? A, you quickly turn your head, pretend you didn't see it. B, you go to the person, tell them you could never have a car like that, you couldn't afford it. C, you tell them the money they spent on the car could feed the poor or help the homeless. Or D, you tell them you're happy that God has blessed them and they have a great vehicle. What gives glory to God? Situation number four, a young girl in the church comes to you and tells you privately she's pregnant. She's not married. She's scared. Your job is to respond in such a way that brings glory to God. What do you do? A, tell her she's sinned and sin has consequences. B, tell everyone in the church about it so all can see this kind of thing won't be tolerated. C, tell her you love her, you want to help her any way you can, and you keep your mouth shut and keep it quiet. What choice do you think would bring glory to God? Which response do you think would reflect the grace of God? As Paul reaches this part of the letter to the Romans, he wants to write things that will help believers become a loving family. He realizes that they're coming from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, all different sins, all different frustrations, but he wants them to function as a family. And what he says here is that believers at church bring great glory to God when they treat each other the way Jesus Christ treats them. 
The churches in the Gentile world were a hodgepodge of all kinds of people. Take that church in Antioch. Just the church in Antioch. You have Gentiles, you have Jews, you have Romans, you have Greeks. You have people of different colors. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, we get a list of just a few of the divergent people that were in that church. You have Barnabas, he's in there, he's Jewish. You have Simeon, he's a black guy from Nigeria. You have Lucius, who's a Gentile Roman from Cyrene. You have Menaean, who's a high-class, wealthy guy who comes out of Herod's house. And then you get Saul, who's a religious zealot, who is like a nut tracking down Christians trying to destroy them. Now, you've got all these people at the same church now. All of these people had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed in Jesus Christ. And now God says, you're in the church. Get along. Develop right. Learn to treat each other the way that Jesus Christ treats you. And never forget this. Jesus Christ puts up with you. He puts up with me. Don't ever forget that. So what Paul does is he wants to motivate these believers to develop in the way that they should develop. And verse 7 begins with the, therefore, accept one another. That's an imperative verb, which means it's a command. We've been commanded by God to actually accept one another. And the pronoun another means another of the same kind. So we're talking here about believers in the church. We have a responsibility to accept one another or receive one another. And that's more than just a word that means just smile and say hi. This word means you really take to a person. You do what you can to get by them to get beside them. You're not standoffish. The word means you receive them. You view them as an addition. You take them to yourself. You take them into your heart. When he says accept one another, you see value to them. You realize they're in the same family that you're in. You've been put into this family by the Lord Jesus Christ, and so have they. If they're in the family of God and they come to church, we should welcome them. We should make them feel, you're one of us. You're wanted here. You're needed here. And when we do that, Paul says, you bring glory to God because that's what Jesus Christ did for us. And you'll notice when he says, accept one another, he doesn't say now, accept one another if they have the right look. If they're good looking or not homely. Accept one another if they're thin or not overweight. Receive them and accept them if they're tall or short or male or female or long-haired or short-haired or wearing a suit or a dress or slacks. He just says, accept them. And churches have a hard time doing that. We had a guy in our church in Idaho who was an undercover agent for the state of Idaho, and he had to go deep undercover to make drug busts first name was John. And John had to look the part of a drug dealer. I mean, he had to grow his hair long. He had to grow a beard. I mean, this was dangerous stuff he was involved in. And he told me a lot about that stuff. It was just fascinating talking to him, how he would go into these places. He literally, at one time, he said, I'd go into places, I'd be carrying three guns, three guns at the same time. Well, he said it would be Sunday, and I'd want to go to church. I'm deep undercover. I'm away from my family. And it's Sunday and I want to go to church. No, he said, I would go to church because I wanted to hear the word of God, fellowship with the people of God, and the people would look at me. 
I had long hair. I had a beard. I didn't look the part. And he said, they treated me like a leper. Do you think that brings glory to God? Think about this. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we come to faith in Jesus Christ in our sin. We come from diverse backgrounds, different levels of depravity. We've done different things, been different places. The fact of the matter is we were totally helpless. We were, according to Paul in Romans, ungodly. We were ungodly sinners that were alienated from God. We were enemies of God, and Jesus Christ saved us. Jesus Christ worked in our lives and brought us into the family with all of our quirks, with all of our filth, with all of our baggage, with all of our hang-ups, with all of our personality flaws. He accepted us and welcomed us into his family to the glory of God. And Paul says, that's the way you want to function in the church. You accept one another. You receive one another. You don't promote the glory of God by fighting and whining and arguing, but by this spirit of unity. A few years ago, in his book, Leadership, Hudson Amerding told this story. Hudson Aberding was the president of Wheaton College from 1965 to 1982. He was a military man. He had a rank in the military, and he fought for this country in World War II. And for those of us who lived in the 60s, in the late 60s, there was a hippie movement that was opposed to war, and Aberding, quite frankly, couldn't stand it. In fact, when he saw those people, he saw these people as a bunch of unpatriotic, long-haired protesters. He saw them as draft dodgers, flag burners, counter-cultural losers. Well, one day, Dr. Amerding was scheduled to speak at a chapel service at Wheaton College. And before the service, they always had pre-service prayer meetings, just like we do. And as they gathered for prayer, a young man walked in, beard, long hair, sash around his waist, sandals on his feet. Dr. Aberding said, when I saw that guy walk in, I was sorry I came to the prayer meeting. And not only that, but the students sat right next to Dr. Aberding. When they started to pray, Dr. Aberding said, I didn't have a good attitude about this. And then the young man prayed. He recorded what the man prayed. Dear Lord, you know how much I admire Dr. Amerding, how I appreciate his walk with you. I'm grateful for what a man of God he is and how he loves you and loves your people. Lord, bless him today. Give him liberty and the Holy Spirit and make him a real blessing to all of us in the student body. Help us to have open hearts to hear what he has to say, and may we do what you want us to do. Dr. Amerding said as he walked to that chapel, he was under tremendous conviction about his whole attitude. At the conclusion of the chapel, he called that young man up on the platform. 
And the students thought, well, he's going to dismiss him from school as an example to all of us, that that's not the way you're to be. But when the man got to the platform, Dr. Aberding put his arms around him and hugged him as a brother in Christ. The students stood. They started applauding. They started crying. They started hugging each other. What Dr. Aberdeen would later learn is this student purposely looked like this because he was out to try to reach that culture for Jesus Christ. But he accepted him as a brother and he embraced him. That brought glory to God. And that's what God was after in the church. That's what Paul was after here. And he said there are two groups of people to whom Jesus Christ ministered. And the first group of people is he ministered to the Jews. Verse 8 says, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. Now, that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the church age began, I mean, that started in Jerusalem, and there were all kinds of Jews that were saved right then and there. A big number of them were saved. And I want you to notice the noun that is used here pertaining to Jesus Christ. It's Christ, Christos. That's the word for Messiah. When you read John 1.41, we found the Messiah, which translated means Christ, so the noun Christ means Messiah. So Paul says, you may be a Jewish person, you must not ever forget that Jesus Christ came and he ministered to you. He came and he ministered to you first, because the program of God said that's what he was going to do. He didn't come and minister to you, Jewish people, because you were such a wonderful group of godly people. He came to Israel to fulfill the revealed truth and promises of God. And the text says that he became a servant and it's a word for servant from which we get our English word deacon. This was a messianic ministry. He came to Israel to fulfill the Old Testament promises that were made concerning Israel. As a messianic minister. In the Old Testament, God made a lot of predictions pertaining to what he was going to do for Israel. He's in a covenant relationship with national Israel. He makes predictions concerning the fact that one day you're going to have a righteous king that will be reigning over you in total righteousness. Just read the Old Testament. You'll see this over and over again. He makes a prediction. They're going to have specific promised land. He spells out those land boundaries. I don't care what fighting's going on right now in the Gaza Strip. Those land boundaries are described by God as going to be Israel's one day. And he also makes the prediction that she's going to be a kingdom where all the nations of the world are going to honor her. Now, there are predictions in the Old Testament that describe the one who would come, who would be able to do that for them. There were descriptions that describe the coming Messiah. He would come and suffer and die as a savior. That's predicted in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And then he would come and he would reign and rule as king. Now, here's the point Paul's making here. Jesus Christ came to fulfill this ministry assignment as a ministry servant, and he did not come here because Israel was such a wonderful group of people that deserved this. He came because God was faithful to his own word. He came to confirm, as the text says, confirm the promises of God. In other words... Jesus Christ came to guarantee the validity of the promises that he will one day fulfill to Israel. And the world better understand this 
because this is New Testament teaching right here, but it comes from the Old Testament. God has a national plan for Israel, and he's going to fulfill it. Israel will have every inch of that promised land. Not one inch will be missing because Jesus Christ or Messiah is going to see to it. Now, his point is, if Christ was willing to do that for that nation, and if Christ was willing to come here to include us, which you'll stress in just a minute, shouldn't we in the church try to get along? He didn't do it because we're so great. He didn't do it because they're so great. He did it to fulfill his grace and mercy. And Paul says he wants people in the church to be gracious and merciful too. So he had a ministry to the Jews. Secondly, he had a ministry to the Gentiles, verses 9 to 12. I want you to notice the emphasis that he has here on the Gentiles and the emphasis that he has on the written scriptures. And for the Gentiles... Verse 9, to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name again. He says, that's another text, again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, and again, there's another passage from the Old Testament, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, he quotes Isaiah, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall Gentiles hope. Since the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the vast majority of believers who have come into the family of God have been Gentiles. Let's just be real clear here. We know that's true because just before Jesus went to the cross, he said to Israel, the program has been put in abeyance with you, and you'll not see me again till every one in the nation Israel cries out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So ever since then, the vast majority of people who've come into the family of God have been Gentiles. So Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles, and he wants us to realize that we have responsibilities as Gentiles who've had the privilege of coming into the program of God, which was originally designed for national Israel. We've had the privilege as individual believers of coming into that family of God, he wants us to understand you also have the responsibility to reflect the grace of God for the glory of God. And he keeps emphasizing it's written. It's written. I like that. It's not what I feel. It's not what I think. It's written. He keeps going to the written scriptures. And what this clearly establishes is that real Christ-likeness for Gentiles comes through the focus on the written scriptures. It's not some abstract feeling of heart. Donald Gray Barnhouse told the story of a man who would go to the hospital just to visit people to pray with him. And he walked into a particular hospital room and he said to the man that was lying in bed, if you came to the end of your life today, will you go to heaven? And the guy said, well, I think so. He said, what do you think they do in heaven? said, well, I think they sing. He said, that's true. What do you think they sing about? Guy had no answer. He said, I'm going to have you take a passage of scripture. I'll stop in and see you again. So he had him turn to Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, where they're singing a new song. They're in heaven singing a new song. So this, we know, is a song that's going to be sung in heaven. He said, I want you to go there and see what they're singing about. So 
The next day, the man went back to see this man in the hospital, and he said, oh my goodness, they're singing about the blood of Jesus Christ. I'll never trust in my works again. And he came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. That's what they're singing about in heaven. That's what Paul's saying here. Jesus Christ came and he ministered to Gentiles. And as you can see in the text, he ministered the mercy of God. It was the mercy of God displayed to the Gentiles. Not because we were wonderful, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it. The fact of the matter is the word mercy stresses the fact we were helpless, we were hopeless, and God mercifully extended his grace package to us. And Paul spends quite a bit of time talking to the Gentiles because this is the Gentile age. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, and he wants Gentiles to understand four ways that God has displayed his marvelous mercy. Number one, he has been merciful to deliver us from our enemies. That's what he says in verse 9. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. I will sing to your name. Now, that quote from verse 9 comes from Psalm 18, 48 to 50. And in that Psalm, David is saying that he will praise God because of the fact that God has raised him up to be king over the Jews and the Gentiles, and God delivered him and rescued him from all his enemies. That's what David was praising God for. He had delivered him from all his enemies. Paul is using that to say, you can make application to this, Gentiles. You that have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can understand here that God has delivered you from your enemies. He's taken you out from the bondage of sin. He's taken you out from guilt. He's elevated you to royalty. He's raised you up from your depravity. He's raised you up to a new relationship with him. Now, shouldn't that motivate you to accept each other? One of the most thrilling moments for one who's ever had cancer is the moment the doctor says the cancer's gone. That's a joyous moment. It's a moment like no other if you've ever had cancer. Well, spiritually speaking, we all have a disease. It's the cancer of sin. It's so deadly it can put us in hell forever. But God reached into our lives and into our minds, and he brought us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. At that very moment, he set us free from sin. He set us free from the law. He declared that we were righteous in Christ and we were clean. So we are forever in the family of God. Paul said, shouldn't that motivate you to try to be merciful to others and accept one another in Christ. The second way that God displayed his mercy is he will ultimately destroy our enemies. Verse 10 says, again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now the quote here is from Deuteronomy 32:43, And in that quote, Moses says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. The statement comes in a context in which Moses was saying rejoice because God will avenge his people. So he's encouraging Gentiles to have a right relationship with God because one of the benefits that believers have who have a right relationship with God is God will destroy their enemies. Paul says one of the blessings of having a relationship with the Lord is knowing that God will take care of you. God will look out for you. God will protect you. God will defend you. He said, because of the fact that you have God on your side, who's looking out for you, he'll take care of your enemies. You don't have to worry about that. He'll take care of your enemies. You can seek to 
accept one another and receive one another in the context of the church. Leave the enemy stuff to the Lord. Thirdly, God is merciful in that he's given us his eternal love. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Now in this verse, Paul quotes the shortest chapter in the Bible, the 117th Psalm. And in that psalm, the text says, Praise the Lord, all nations, laud him, all peoples, for his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. So by quoting this particular text, what Paul is basically saying to the people who are Gentiles is, Look, you are in a relationship with God that features his unending love for you. Paul says he's given you his truth. He's worthy of praise because he's given us a relationship that we will have with him forever. I mean, do you understand that? If you know Jesus Christ, you're in a relationship where you are right with God forever. And he says, let all the people, all the people who are in that state, praise the Lord. And the fourth way that we are in a right relationship with God is that he will deliver us to his eternal kingdom. Verse 12, again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Paul's quoting Isaiah 11.10 here and making the point that in the kingdom reign of Jesus Christ, there will be Jewish people there and there will be Gentile people there. And so what Paul is basically saying is, look, do you realize everything God's done for you? What Jesus Christ has done in opening up this relationship with you? He's given you this wealth here. So don't you think that you could, for the glory of God, just accept one another in the Lord? Get along with each other. Quit being a nightmare for people. Act like a good brother or sister in Christ. That's what Paul was after in the church. Then, in verse 13, he brings this to a conclusion by making a prayer that's comprised of rich doctrine that, quite frankly, we need to know. Verse 13, now, and by the way, I assume with that conjunction now, it's contingent upon us applying what he just said. So if you don't apply what's just said, then what he's about to say probably won't be real applicable to you. But if you're willing to apply what he just said... There are some rich things that are promised here because he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Spirit of God. Reality number one, the God of the Bible is the God in whom we hope. No matter what happens in this world, our hope is not in this world. My hope is not in the news. My hope is not in politics. My hope is not in a politician. I'm not longing for that. My hope is in the Lord. In fact, I think one of the things that has been a real good blessing that's come out of the political quagmire that we've seen over the past years is some of God's people are beginning to realize, you know what? We have to hope in God. Because we can't find any solutions hoping in anything else. That's a good place to be. That's where our hope is found. Secondly, the God of the Bible is the God who can fill us with all joy by our believing. That's what he says, and all joy. All joy. 
People who are right with God are joyful people. People that aren't right with God are some of the most miserable people you'll ever meet. But people who are really applying the things of the Lord to their lives, they become joyful people. They're happy. They're happy in the Lord. They're upbeat. They're not a bunch of long-faced misers. Then he says the God of the Bible is the God that can fill us with all peace by our believing. He says that too. And peace. Look, you don't have to apply any of this if you don't want to. You stay focused on you. Stay focused on your own little world, your own little agenda. What you're going to miss out on is the joy of the Lord and the peace of the Lord. Because you'll never have it. It doesn't matter where you go in life, you're never going to have it. You'll be miserable because you're not focused right as a believer. God wants us focused on him and his grace. Some of the most troubled believers that you'll ever meet will be those that are out of fellowship with God. They are emotional wrecks. And you look at them and you go, where is the peace of God in their life? Do they ever have joy? Do they ever experience anything? It's because they're out of fellowship with God. Fourthly, the God of the Bible is the God to whom we are connected by our believing. Don't overlook that. He says there in verse 13, with all joy and peace in believing. That's how you get it. It's a matter of faith. It starts with faith in Jesus Christ, not works, not trying to keep the law. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's the starting point. And upon that starting point, you build by faith an application of grace teaching, and as you build this application of grace teaching, you develop more hope in the Lord, you develop more joy, you develop more peace, and he stresses again, number five, the God of the Bible is the God who can make us abound in hope. Look at that, abound in hope. Do you see believers doing that today? One of the things I've been working on in my own life, personally, pastorally, is keep my mouth shut in situations where I'm just surging to get in it. But I listen to people. I listen. Don't talk a lot, I listen. Let me tell you what I'm hearing from God's people almost. A God is dead philosophy. I don't know. Bank's going down. Going to lose it all. Yeah, we don't have a God who's promised he'll take care of us and meet our needs. No, we can't hope in that. We've got to hope in what you're hearing on the news. We're going to lose all our freedoms. God says, now look, I promise I'll take care of my people. He made those promises to his people in far worse political situations than you and I have ever lived. He made promises, I'll take care of my people when you had a nut like Nero running the world. And he said, I'll provide for you, I'll care for you, you just keep your trust and keep your hope in me. Look, God is where we need to keep our hope. And frankly, the text says we can reach a place where we abound in hope. You know what you see mostly? People abounding in no hope. That's why we need to get focused on the scriptures. And finally, the God of the Bible is the God who can cause us to abound by the power of the Holy Spirit. In hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, you can't conjure this deal up. The Holy Spirit lives inside every believer. The Holy Spirit knows what the real situation is in the relationship between God and every single believer. You can't just conjure up joy, you can't conjure up hope, you can't 
conjure up all of this peace? You can't do it on your own. It has to be produced by the Holy Spirit. And the only way the Spirit of God will produce this is when a person who's a believer in Jesus Christ is developing in the grace and mercy of God, which means accept one another in the Lord. And if you're here today and you've never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to understand this. Your works have no chance of you getting into heaven. I don't care. You compare yourself to me and you may be way better than me and we just still won't make it. Because your works are as filthy rags. That's why Jesus Christ came to this earth. It's brought out here. Christ did it. He's the one who can give us this. You need a relationship with him. And if you've never invited him into your life, do it now. Do it today. He'll save you. He'll begin a process that will give you joy and peace. May we pray. If you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, where he is set, you can settle it. This is business between you and God, nobody else. Just pray something like this. God, here's my life. I need Jesus Christ in it right now, and I invite him in. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. Forgive us for times we've failed. We've failed. We haven't hit the bullseye of this target. At least I'll admit I haven't. And help us to develop an attitude that is Christ-like and consistent with what you would have us be. Help us to understand the tension and the balance that's demanded in people who reflect the grace and mercy of God. For anything that you've done here today, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.